So just a quick review of where we are in Nehemiah. We've been going through this whole book. And if you remember at the beginning, we, we talked about how Nehemiah had returned to Jerusalem. He was a cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, the Persian king. And he was a Jewish man who had heard about the walls being broken down in Jerusalem. Now, about uh, 60 years or, or more before this time, uh, God had began to, to stir up the kings that were ruling that part of the world at that time. And there were people, there were Jewish people who were exiled from uh, Judea and Jerusalem who were in these different parts of these kingdoms. And God began to bring them back to the land so they could rebuild Jerusalem. So at this point, when Nehemiah comes, the temple has been rebuilt. Uh, they're beginning to do some sacrifices. But the walls had been all broken down, which means the, the, the enemies could come in and God's people were not secure. Now, it's important that we remember that this was all part of God's plan, that when God said to his people, listen, because you've disobeyed me, I'm going to chasten you by sending you into captivity. You're going to be uh, slaves and you're going to be servants to another nation. He said through the prophet Jeremiah to his people that he would, in 70 years, bring them back into their land. And so what's happening in Ezra and Nehemiah is we're seeing that promise come to pass, where when God said, I'll do this in 70 years, he's brought the people back and Jerusalem's being rebuilt. God's people are being restored. Now, we also know that at this time, they had made some really great progress. Uh, they were about halfway uh, built up of the wall. So you're talking to maybe about 13, 14 feet high. The gates hadn't put on, but the wall, the, the Jerusalem was more defensible. So they were in a more secure place. But we saw last week that even though they were in a more secure place, what was getting exposed or brought to the surface was some conflict in between them, really conflict about class and the wrong use of money. And these issues were coming uh, to play. And so what happens is Nehemiah confronts the greedy of his day. He confronts those who were uh, wanting to take advantage of the difficult situation to make themselves rich, to line their own pockets. And he confronts them. And we saw last week in verse 10 how Nehemiah set an example. He says, look, this is what it's going to be. We're going to loan money, but we're not going to expect anything back in return, not even interest. We're not going to do that. And we should be just radically generous to give money away as well. He sets an example. And so really, we could have finished Nehemiah 5 last week. We could have just taken these last verses and tied that in easily to see Jeremiah's example. But I wanted to save it for this week for a very specific reason. It's the fourth Sunday. It's the bring and share Sunday. And if you haven't brought any food, don't worry. There'll be plenty. So please stay. But it's also the Sunday that we set aside to go to the Lord's table to remember what Jesus did for us in communion. And it's important for us to, to know that as, as Jesus said about the scriptures, he said, in the, he said that all the scriptures teach about him. Everything ultimately has its fulfillment and points to Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so even what we're going to look at here, even Nehemiah's example, we want to be able to see that Nehemiah's example of generosity points to the generosity of God in sending Jesus for us. That's what we want to see. Well, let's start by looking at Nehemiah's example. What kind of generosity did he show? Here's the first thing that I want you to see. Nehemiah exemplified a generosity that let go of privilege. In verse 14, it says, Moreover, from that time as he was appointed as the governor of the land. He says, for the 12-year period that he was governor, 
Okay, neither he nor his brothers, those people that worked with him, ate the governor's provisions. Now, the governors of these regions were allowed to buy uh, Artaxerxes to sort of set tax rates, specific tax rates, that would make sure they could feed their household, cover all their expenses, even that would enable them to be enriched by this. So, so he, would have been, he would have legally been allowed to do this. He could have legally sent out his, uh, his servants and, and the people who worked with him out into the area and said, look, we're collecting taxes for the governor. They could have done that, would have covered all his expenses, and even could have gotten wealthy at this. But he doesn't do it. Nehemiah does not take what is rightfully his. But what do we see in verse 15? He says, but the former governors who were before me, they laid heavy burdens on the people. They took bread and wine plus 40 shekels of silver, a, a high price from these people. He says, these guys did this. Now, what we see about Nehemiah here, he's avoiding the temptations of his predecessors. These guys saw, okay, it's our right to do this, and they exploited the situation. In fact, verse 15 tells us, right, that not only did they did this, but even their servants, the servants of those governors, bore a rule or, or held it over the people. They exploited the people to take money from the people because they could. They had this position of power. Nehemiah didn't do that. He avoided that. Now, this is important because Nehemiah set an example that actually was, was so strong and so clear that his servants actually follow example. And this is important for us to think, think about. Because when we talk about being a good example, sometimes we think about, okay, am I doing something bad that might stumble somebody? I don't think so. I don't think I'm that bad of a person. But are we living in such a way, and I'm, I'm talking to you guys who are already Jesus followers now, but am I living in such a way that people go, man, I want to follow Jesus the way that guy follows Jesus. I want to know Jesus the way that guy knows Jesus. Are we living that way? Now, Nehemiah lives in such a way that really reminds us of a proverb. Proverb 29, 12 says, If a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. And you can flip that. If a, if a, if a, a leader or a ruler pays attention to truth, all his, wicked, all his servants sorry, will become righteous. They'll grow. He avoided the temptations that were there. And he says really clearly, doesn't he, in verse 15, why he did this, he says, or why he didn't do this, why he didn't take advantage of the situation. He said, I did, do this, I did not do so because of what? The fear of God. Nehemiah was concerned about what God's opinion was about his behavior. This is what motivated him. In other words, he didn't just do the right thing, he did the right thing for the right reason. He was concerned about what God saw about his behavior. Now, I'll be honest, I've met lots of of, of non-believers, people who wouldn't consider themselves religious, don't have a faith in God, don't have a faith in the biblical Jesus, who do a lot of good things, who are very moral, nice people. They, they do often the right thing. So, so why don't we just say, well, just do the right thing. Don't really worry about this whole fear of God stuff. Does that really matter? As long as the actions are good. Well, the problem with that is, one, is when, how long is that right thing going to remain the right thing? And what we have here with Nehemiah is somebody who should have been, or probably was, really tempted to do something that he could have said was the right thing. Hey, I came to rebuild the walls. I'm not as rich as I was when I worked for Artaxerxes. And, and, and why can't I justify doing this? Why can't I make the money that I should be making? Why should at least I have my expenses paid? He could have done things that people would have said, well, he has a right to do that. But he wasn't just, considered, or wasn't just concerned about doing the right thing. He wanted to do the right thing 
with the right motives. He wanted to be motivated by who God is and what God says. The psalmist says this in Psalm 147, 11, says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and those who hope in His mercy. Nehemiah's goal was not just to help out the people of Israel. It wasn't just to help out his brothers and sisters and see this promise restored. Nehemiah's desire was to please the God who made him and saved him. The psalm says also in Psalm 112, verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, how joyful are those who fear the Lord and delight in obeying His commands. There's something special that we experience as we say, God, I don't want to just do the right thing. I want to do the right thing for the right motives. I want to move forward in what you have for me. I'll tell you this too. It's a secret to good relationships. Because so often, especially like in marriage relationships, romantic relationships, we think, okay, what's going to motivate me is the other person. And that lasts for a while, but eventually it dies off. The same thing happens when it comes to children. When your kids are first born, at least for me, when my kids were first born, I was just stupid in love. I was just like weeping. They're beautiful. You're not surprised I was weeping, but they're beautiful. And I just, I, I couldn't get enough of my kids. But eventually, they do things that are annoying. They do things that you're kind of going, oh, I need some space for my kids. So what motivates you to keep loving when that happens? Sometimes you start a new job and it's just like, this is it, my dream job. This is the one I'm looking for. It's all going to go good until your boss just drives you nuts. <laughs> what keeps you going? Be motivated by something higher than that person or that circumstance. That's what the fear of God is saying. God, what's your opinion about how I'm acting in this way? That's where my motivation comes from. That's where Nehemiah, Nehemiah's motivation came from. Nehemiah set a great example to follow, and his servants followed that example. In verse 16 it says, Indeed, I also continued to work on this wall. It's the idea that he didn't just kind of tell people what to do, but he was there with his trowel and mortar. He says, uh, And we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. In other words, because of the poverty, because of the difficulty there, as we saw last week, people were mortgaging their lands. It, was, it would have been a temptation, and other governors would have done this in the past, where they said, you know what, don't just mortgage, I'll buy that off you, you'll have all the money you need for this season. And it was a way to kind of take advantage of poor people and get the land for themselves. Nehemiah did not do that. Why? Because he was willing to let go of privilege. That's part of generosity. He's saying, you know what, Lord, I could do this, but I'm not going to do this. You know, you could, you could sleep in on a Sunday. You could choose not to serve on a team. You could. But are you willing to be generous with your time and let go of that privilege? You could watch the game instead of play with your kids. You could do just about enough so your boss is off your back. You could be that way, but are you willing to be generous with your time, with your efforts, because you fear God? Nehemiah was a good example of this. What's really amazing, too, don't forget this whole picture that we're seeing in Nehemiah of the, the walls being restored. It's a picture of what God is doing with his people in general. He's restoring us back to right relationship with him. He's creating in our hearts a longing for the world that we all really want. And he promises when he returns to make that world come to pass. 
This is, what we, this is the good news that we have. Listen, for those of us that are Jesus followers, if we are doing what we're doing for God's glory, we want him to be seen, we want to know him. And I'm not talking about church stuff, I'm talking about everyday stuff. But if we're doing what we're doing because we want to know God in it, we want to show God in it, you know what happens? We can know for sure that none of that is in vain, whether people appreciate it or don't. Listen to this. This is the Apostle Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15, several hundred years later, he says, So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Hey, it might feel useless, but according to what God says, it's never useless. In 1996, I think it was, Sarah and I, and at the time we just had our two oldest we moved from California, West Coast, across the country to North Carolina, East Coast, to plant a church. And I had been a youth worker for a youth pastor for about four and a half years and took a youth group of nine kids that were a bunch of potheads that came to my youth group. And we turned it into 50 kids. And I thought, I've conquered youth ministry. Now I'm going to conquer church planting. And I moved to the number one place to live in America and went to plant a church and failed miserably. I couldn't get but like six people to come to a Bible study in, the, in, in a place that had more Christians per capita than anywhere else in America. Pretty sad. But it was a great lesson to learn. You see, God wants to do stuff in us that brings glory to His name. Not glory to our name. Nehemiah wasn't looking to bring glory to his own name. He wanted to bring glory to God. Now, so he demonstrates this just generosity that, that lets go of privilege, but also it was a generosity that flowed from abundance. Look at verse 17. He says, At my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Now, what he's referring to there was it was, it was part of the responsibility of governing in that day to be hospitable to those who had influence. You had them eat at your table. At your table is where you discuss what you're going to do. You would negotiate deals. You would, you would deal with conflict. And so it was important that you were hospitable. Okay? That you were really, really hospitable. This is what you needed to do. Now, what this is saying is, is that Nehemiah did this for 150 plus people every night. He did this out of his own pocket. Now, I want you to think about some of these things, okay? I want you to think about the excessive wealth that was there. Look at verse 18. He says, now, now this is what was prepared daily. He says, one ox, six choice sheep, plus fowl for me, plus every 10 days, an abundance of all kinds of wine. But he didn't take any of this from the king's provision. He didn't collect tax to pay for this. It came out of his own pocket. Let, let's do some math. You guys ready? Okay. So, uh, one ox per day times 350 day, 354 days. It's a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. So that's 354 days. Times 12 years equals, listen, 4,248 oxen. You got to be pretty wealthy to provide that. Listen to this. Six sheep, right? You do the math again, right? Six sheep, that comes out to, in 12 years, 25,488 choice sheep. Again, you have to be pretty wealthy. Now, the reason I'm bringing this out was, now we might read this and think to ourselves, okay, he's, he's generous, but he's also rich. Big deal. 
Because in our modern mindset, we tend to think, especially if we come from poorer backgrounds like I did, we tend to think, well, if you're rich and you're generous, well, that's what you're supposed to do. It doesn't mean anything. But there's a picture here that we don't want to miss. Remember, all Scripture points to Jesus, and we want to pull back at that picture in a minute. But also, here's what we need to understand. He could have supplied this from the taxes, but he didn't do that. Don't forget that. But also, we don't know how much of this wealth it was. It could have been that basically when he leaves, because we, we do know from Nehemiah that he's there for a season, he's gone for a season, he's back for a season. He could have gone because he's like, I'm broke, I can't do this anymore. I've got to go work for Xerxes for a while to earn some more money. We don't know. We don't know what percentage of his wealth was being spent on this. We don't know. But also what we do want to remember is he's giving out of abundance. It's a really important thing to think of. We'll talk about that in a second. And he says, here's why he's doing this, right? Why is he doing this? He's doing this because the burden that was on the people from the former governors. In other words, there had been such a heavy tax on the people who had lived in Jerusalem and it was broken down before that he thought, these guys don't need any more burdens. He was caring for them. Now, what did he say? Remember earlier, we, we, we read earlier in, um, in verse 15, he said what his reason was. He says, my reason is what? The fear of God. But here he says that his reason is the burden of the people. Well, which was it? Was it the fear of God or the care for the people? Which one was it? They're both because they're two sides of the same coin. Because this is the reality, guys. Listen, our fear of God, our concern for what does God think about my life? If we know the God of Scripture, that fear, that reverence for what he thinks will be shown in our care for other people. How we invest in other people. This brings us to the last point. It's not just generosity that lets go of privilege or generosity that flows from abundance, but a generosity that points to God. Nehemiah prays, and this is like the fourth time we've already seen in his book where he prays this way. Nehemiah prays, verse 19, Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now this is not Nehemiah trying to brag. In fact, there's one Bible commentator that said, that believes that, because if you remember when we started the book of Nehemiah, we, we said this is actually Ezra's book. Ezra, the book before Nehemiah, and Nehemiah were originally one book. So in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. So it was Ezra who gathered this information from the time he spent in Jerusalem and also from those who were there before him and also those who were there after him or during him, like Nehemiah. This is why if you remember, Nehemiah is written sometimes in the first person when Ezra is probably gathering uh, Nehemiah's reports, but also uh, sometimes it's, it's written in the third person when Ezra is just describing what took place. Now there's also some, some idea that what could be here was that what Ezra got from Nehemiah was his own personal copy that could have been like used as a devotional, like a way to remember what God had done, like a journal. And so maybe on the side of the journal was written these kind of prayers. And so Ezra adds these prayers. In other words, it could have been that these were originally these prayers that were originally written. were not written for Artaxerxes, who would have wanted a requirement of what Nehemiah was doing. But they were written from Nehemiah's heart to his God. He didn't even intend anybody necessarily to see them. We don't know. But what we do know is this, from Nehemiah's character. He's not saying, oh, look at me, I'm so wonderful. God you know, exalt me because I'm such a spiritual guy. That's not what he's doing. He's looking to God. He's saying, God, I want you to be seen. I want to trust you to reward me. I want to trust you 
to make yourself known through me, and I just want to know you through this. He's not looking to exalt his own character, but to demonstrate God's character. That's what he's doing. Now, it's important for us to understand that generosity, the kind of generosity we see Nehemiah exemplifying here, is an expression of God's love. Now, at this point, some of you might be getting nervous. Oh, no. Is he going to talk about money again? Is he going to pass a plate, take an offering? Nope, none of that. It's important that you recognize that when I'm talking about generosity, that what we want to do with this section of Nehemiah is not just say, hey, Nehemiah was a great example. Follow his example. Do better. That's not the gospel. It's not a bad thing to do, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is not what we do for God, but what God has done for us. Not how generous we are, but how generous God is to us. And Nehemiah points forward to Jesus in that. I think it's important that we understand some things, okay? First of all, I think it's important that we understand that God did not make us because he was lonely. You are, you are been created by God, and you weren't created by God because God was lonely. Like he was twiddling around there in whatever kind of spiritual state he was in, and he thought, man, I wish there was someone I could talk to. Oh, no, I'll make someone to talk to. That's not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is not a singular uh, person. He's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is why we read things like in Genesis 1 in the creation account, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And if you read the creation account, it mentions the creative power of God's Spirit. If you go to the New Testament, it says very specifically, Jesus is the creator. So which one of them did it? Yes. That's the answer. He did it. God, Father, Son, and Spirit created in His image. In other words, we are made for relationship from a God who is already eternally relational. God didn't make us because He was lonely. God didn't make us because He needed something. He was perfectly content in Himself, perfectly full of joy in Himself. You can, for homework, read John chapter 17. Jesus is what's called Jesus' high priestly prayer, and see his attitude towards the Father, expressing what he's always had with the Father. Listen to this, Acts chapter 17. He is the God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in man-made temples and in human hands that, that can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything. He satisfies Every need. See, we're not serving a God. As, as Christians, we're not serving a God who needs us. You know, the Greeks believe in the God who needed them. In fact, the Greeks believed that if they stopped praying to the gods, the gods would die. What a weak God. Our God doesn't need anything from us. No, he, he didn't create us because he was lonely. He didn't create us because he needed something. He made us out of his generous love because, notice, listen, he is generous love. The scripture says plainly, God is love. It doesn't say God is loving, though he is. It doesn't say God does love, though he does. God is love. 
See, see let me be really clear about this, okay? If, if you're new to Christianity, if you're, if you're kind of new to God things, God stuff, you need to understand something. When we say God is love, when the scripture says God is love, it doesn't mean, think of love, that's what God's like. It doesn't mean that. It means that God, who God is eternally, who God has always been, defines what love is. This is why we who are made in the image of God, even though we are fallen and broken people, we long above, for all things we long for, above all things we long for love. We are made for love. We are made by God. In fact, think about this. God who needed nothing, God who was perfectly satisfied in himself because God is love. He decides to make all the universe just so that the crowning part of his creation, that's mankind, can know him. God says, I'm going to make humanity so they can know me. I'm going to give them not just every good and perfect gift. I'm going to give them the best thing I can give them. I'm going to give them myself. That's what God does. That's the God of Scripture. He made us out of his generous love because he is generous love. But also, listen, he redeems us because of that same generous love. Listen to what the scripture says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The same love that God is that motivated him to create all things and he created them perfect. They got messed up because of us but he created them perfect. That God with that same love sends his only begotten son in a very real sense, that God adds to his deity humanity. He takes on human flesh and lives a perfect life on this earth. That's what he does. That's the reference when it says, God so loved the world, he sent his son. He redeems us because of that same generous love. But listen, here's what we need to understand. When, when God sent Jesus, here's what he pictures, right? Just like Nehemiah, listen, like Nehemiah, Jesus let go of privilege and he loved us generously. Again, read this for homework. Philippians chapter 2. Read it for homework. Okay? Read it later on. But in Philippians chapter 2, this is exactly what Paul unpacks. This reality that Jesus, who was equal with God, didn't think it was robbery to see himself as equal with God and it wasn't. He lays aside the free exercise of his deity and he takes on humanity. He becomes a servant. Why? For us. This is what he does. He's that generous. The Bible says this, when, when Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and encouraging them to be materially generous to those who are in need, here's what he writes. He says, I'm not commanding you to do this. In other words, he says, I'm not forcing you to do this. He says, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of other churches. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. The generous grace of God. I'm going to ask the ushers if they would bring the communion elements to these benches on either side of me. If we could get some of the grape juice and the unleavened bread on either side of me.
The generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, he became poor that we might become rich. Now again, so you don't misunderstand, or if you've frequent watched the, the God channel, you might misunderstand to think this means God wants me to be rich materially. Well, no, that's not what it means. What it does mean is that we've had this great promise that if we put our faith in Jesus and we'll live for him, we can have the inheritance that he has for us. We can know God in a, in a, in a, in a similar way that Jesus knows God, that the Son knows the Father. We can experience that kind of closeness with him. The Bible says this about his generosity. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. So we like to be generous sometimes, don't we? We like to be generous with people that we really care for. We like to be generous at Thanksgiving and Christmas. I, I know I do. I know one of the biggest temptations I have every year is spending more money than I have on my kids on Christmas. We've been fighting that for years and we, we kind of have a solution of how that works. But still, it's very tempting. We want to be generous with those we love. But you know, I think about some of the people who have treated me badly over the years. I think about this bully I knew when I was like in year six of school. This guy used to pick on me a lot. And I think, my instinct isn't like, I want to buy him some nice, a nice Christmas present. It's, I want to booby trap his Christmas presents. <laughs> I want to get vengeance. I want to come back to him. But the Bible says that God demonstrates. He doesn't just say, it's there if you want it, but he does something with his love. He demonstrates, he proves his love that while we're still sinners, when we're still enemies to God, he sends Christ to die for us. That God loves that generously. 